churro's fat cousin, a tortilla that's not flat, and a fortified wine infused with herbs. This week, we're in Madrid, Spain. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Before we begin our culinary journey to Madrid, let me remind you to never miss an episode and subscribe to Destination Eat Drink at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, RadioMisfits.com, or go to DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the podcast tab. There you'll find links to every episode. This week's podcast is a bit unusual, and I'll tell you why. I've done lots of podcasts interviewing people about places that I've visited, like when I talked to Ryan Jacobs about hunting truffles in Piedmont, Italy, or when I talked to Kathy McCabe of TV's Dream of Italy about the Amalfi Coast. And I've also interviewed people about places that I've never visited, people like Pulitzer Prize winner Elizabeth Becker. I talked to her about Cambodia, or when I talked to Alex Meyazi about when he visited Mongolia. But this is the first time I've spoken to someone about a place I've never visited, but a place that I'm in the stages of planning to visit. In fact, that's how I discovered Lauren Alois. Her company, Devour Tours, does food tours in Madrid. And longtime listeners know that I advocate food tours as a great way to get to know a city. So while I was researching Madrid and planning fun things to do, I sent off an email to Lauren and asked her to be on the show and was really happy when she said she'd love to be on the show to talk about the special food culture of Madrid. Our talk was really fun and interesting, so... Let's eat. Destination. Eat, drink. Lauren Alois is an American expat and founder of Devour Tours, a company that offers food-centric tours in four Spanish cities, as well as Lisbon, Rome, and Paris. Lauren also has a website, SpanishSabores.com, that features recipes and city guides. Lauren Welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Hi, Brent. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Lauren, you're an American. How did you wind up in Spain? <laughs> the, the question I always get. Um, it's, it's, it's a simple story, really. I had graduated from uh, college. I'd studied hospitality and tourism in Spanish, and it was uh, during the recession when I graduated and um, I wasn't inspired by any of the job interviews I'd done and also did not actually get <laughs> the, the final interviews. So I, I was jobless. Um, and I found out about an opportunity to come to Spain with a student visa to um, help in Spanish classrooms with English. So kind of, kind of like an English teaching assistant. And at the same time, had a boss who was uh, in, a, in a restaurant I worked in, a country club, um, who was very much into Spanish cuisine and thought and told me, if you go anywhere, go to Spain because you'll come back. I want to work in hospitality and tourism. And, and he said, you'll come back with uh, this great advantage because Spanish food is becoming quite popular in the New England area, which is where I was based. 
and not many people have expertise. So I thought, okay, this all aligns. I've studied Spanish. Um, there's this opportunity. This guy is telling me it's a great, you know, uh, way to potentially boost my career when I come back to the U.S. And so I just signed up and I, I bought a ticket to Spain, accepted um, the the placement into this program, and I was based outside of Seville in the south of Spain. I started that job. I wasn't especially uh, engaged in being an English teaching assistant, but it was a, a good opportunity to be here. And I um, started to taste my way around the region and met my Spanish husband, uh, now husband, and decided to stay uh, for many reasons, but the food being <laughs> being one of the main ones, to be honest. Good <laughs> the, in the wine. The food and the guy or the two Yeah, reasons. The, the food, the wine, and the man. <laughs> So your husband is from uh, Porta de Santa Maria, which has a special place in my heart. I did an episode a few months back about the Sherry Triangle and Porta de Santa Maria. Talk about that area, because I just I think it is so undiscovered by Americans when they go to the south of Spain, they go to the Costa del Sol or they go to Sevilla and they don't go beyond that. But this area of the Sherry Triangle and Porta de Santa Maria is so special. Talk about that region. Yeah, it's a really interesting region, as you'll have seen, where it isn't the Spain that is in all of the, you know, the picture books. It's not the necessarily the the sunny beachside touristed area, and it's also not the beautiful opulence of Seville, which had so much wealth at, at one point in its history. Uh, El Puerto de Santa Maria, above all, it, within the Sherry Triangle, is is quite a little bit dilapidated right now. You know, it, the recession hit it hard. There's a lot of buildings that need restoration, but it has an amazing soul and amazing food, of course. And as part of the Sherry Triangle, you just have so many unique places that that have been around for for decades and where people have been ordering the same types of food and drink for over a century. And you really feel there that you are in uh, deep Spain. Uh, People don't necessarily speak as much English and people are very warm and welcoming. Food is great. The wine is great. And it's it's like you said, it's a little bit of a hidden gem. You know, one of my favorite memories was we were in Cadiz, which is a short little ferry ride away from Porto, and we were just wandering around enjoying the day, and we came across a flamenco school, and Mm -hmm. the students were inside taking their lesson, and there was an open window, and we just stood there for 30 minutes and (laughs) watched them do their thing. It, it It wasn't in any tour guide. It wasn't in any book. No one would know it was there. We just stumbled on it, and... Moments like that, I think, really capture the true essence of, you know, Porto and Cadiz and the Sherry Triangle. Yeah, there's a lot of culture there that you don't necessarily see in bigger Spanish cities like Madrid and Barcelona. And even in Seville, uh, you'll see people on the street selling oysters during oyster season. The tiny, tiny little prawns that people eat from a cone yes. um, with their shell and heads and eyes and everything still on with a little bit of salt and lemon. So you see those things that I've never seen anywhere else in Spain. And Spain's fascinating because it has so much diversity uh, depending on the region that you're in. But the Cadiz region uh, is just truly special and and a place that Spaniards kind of keep to themselves maybe because among Spaniards it's a very popular area to go especially in the summer Uh, but the tourists it's still it's still a little bit off the beaten path so yeah 
sharing the secret. <laughs> okay. People should go. It, it really is it really is a special place. But today we're talking about uh, Madrid. Uh, we're going to go north to the capital of Madrid. Tell us about your adopted hometown. Madrid. Madrid is an amazing city with a ton of just vibrancy. And it's a city that takes in everyone. Uh, there's a, a joke about Madrid that the true Madrileños are called gatos, cats. And that would mean that you, that you are born in Madrid, but that your parents were also born in Madrid, both of them. And most people I know have never met a cat. I think I've met maybe one. So it's very much a melting pot city, um, like a lot of the world's capitals. But within Spain, it's the place where people came to try to make a better life for themselves. So whether they were from another part of Spain or in more recent years from other countries, it's a city that's really opened its arms to, I think, a lot of a lot of people. Um, And you never feel you never feel out of place in Madrid uh, and you can find a lot of diversity. So it's it's a really it's a really Spanish city, but at the same time, quite international, which is a really interesting mix. And culturally speaking, it just has a million places to discover, whether you're talking about restaurants or museums, um, parks, and it's it's a great city. It's a great quality of life. I'm I'm, I'm happy to be a Madrilenia, an adopted Madrilenia, <laughs> not a gato. But not a gato. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you talked about the international flair of Madrid, Lauren, and Uh, So give us an example. What are some of the international cultures and how do they express themselves in Madrid? Yeah, so we have a lot of um, restaurants from different places in the world. I'd say our our kind of pockets are a lot of Chinese restaurants uh, from specific parts of China. Uh, We do have some Salvadorian places and some Ethiopian. We have a lot of uh, Asian restaurants that have kind of I think done Asian fusion lately because it's a little bit trendy, but but have maybe base in, in, in either China or or another part of Asia where people come and they, they kind of tweak their own recipes to see what the local palate likes. But but it's it's a city that, while in no way as diverse as London or, or New York, uh, still gives you enough. And, and and our friends who come from other regions in Spain and come to spend some time in Madrid, they're always like, oh, we have to go, you know, get get really good um, Salvadorian food, or we have to go to a, a Haitian restaurant or something like that that you can't you simply can't find in in practically any other Spanish city, with the exception being maybe maybe Barcelona. Oh, interesting. Let's talk about tapas, because I think if that's the one thing people know about the cuisine of Spain and Madrid, it's tapas. Tapas is so popular in the United States. But talk about what tapas means to a person from Madrid. Um, What should we look for in tapas? And is there any tapas etiquette that we need to know about. Yes. Okay. So tapas is one of the most confusing things that you will encounter when you come visit Spain, because if you ask eight different Spaniards what a tapa is to define it for you, they will give you eight different answers. And it will depend on where they're from, where their family is from, um, because the word changes its meaning throughout the country. So in theory, (laughs) the original tapas 
come for free with your drink. And there's a lot of origin stories from this, but but let's just say that they're they're complementary to accompany a drink. Um, and here in Madrid, that happens often in traditional places. And you probably will get some olives, uh, maybe some potato chips, maybe some anchovies, something small. Uh, and that is your tapa. It's for free. It comes with your drink. And if you order another drink, you might get another tapa. It might be the same thing or it might be uh, something different. However, if you go to other cities in Spain, they do not give the free tapa and uh, they charge you for tapas and they have them on the menu as such. And in those cities, usually tapa means small portion. So you will go for dinner and you might get a few tapas for yourself or to share, although depending again on where you are, they might be too small to even share. They're really kind of individual size uh, portions. In Seville, you, for example, will see on the menus uh, a, a column for each dish that's called tapa. Then you'll see another column called half portion, media ración. And then you'll see another column called full full portion, ración. And so so really, if you ordered a tapa of something in Seville, you're just going to get a personal sized, small, few bites uh, serving size. But it really, really depends. And then other parts of Spain where tapas aren't as traditional, like the north or even Barcelona, you now see tapas being used in, in as more of a marketing term. So it's really confusing for tourists, but even for locals. And I always, I always recommend that people take their time when ordering and that they ask questions that people here are friendly and would love to answer you know, your questions. So don't be, don't ever feel ashamed to say, Hey, how big are the tapas here? How many should I order if I want to be full or, or if we're, you know, just having some appetizers, um, how many do you recommend? And that way you don't end up doing with what a lot of tourists do here in Madrid, which is they think that the, the portions, uh, are tapas. And they order, you know, seven of these raciones among two people, which is enough food for seven people. <laughs> and if you're at a nice restaurant, they will tell you, oh, no, no. Like, even if they're unable to speak English, they'll, they'll advise you with their body language, with everything to tell, try to tell you you're ordering too much food. But if you're at a place that's not as not as nice they'll let you order it and then they'll throw it away when you don't finish it. Um, so that's a shame to me when I see that happening. Is it okay from an etiquette standpoint to just go in, get one tapa, maybe a small drink and then leave and go to the net and, and visit several tapas joints um, in a row using this method of having one tapa in each place? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, in Madrid, uh, this is a city that, that that's kind of the tapas culture that there is here, that in the places that are traditional, and we usually call them bars or taverns um, in Spanish, they're known for one or two things. So they might have a variety of things on their menu, but really when you go there, you get something very specific. It might be a, a salt cod fritter or uh, a piece of the tortilla, the Spanish omelet. And so that's really their specialty. And so what people do is they will go and they'll have an evening out where they go to this place for the tortilla. Then they'll go across the street for the mushrooms. Then they'll go to the place down the street for the, for the uh, meatballs. Now, all of those tapas that you would order are um, from the menu. They're not the free tapa. In addition to that, you might get the olives or the potato chips, um, but those would be charged. And, and that's perfectly normal. 
but you do have to do it in the bar area. There's very few places where you can sit down unless there's a few little tables in the bar uh, where you can order tapas or where it would be appropriate to order so little food and then leave. Um, so you really want to search out those bars, bares, ta taverns, tavernas, and go to those types of places for this type of tapas crawl. Uh, if you start going into restaurants and ordering just one dish and then saying, oh, we're going to leave, that that would be a little bit odd. So if there's tablecloths and, and waiters, um, that's not quite the place that you would do that. You mentioned the bars and tavernas having their own specialty. How would you know what their specialty is? Would you ask? Or would it be obvious? Kind of all of the above. So you can certainly ask, what's your specialty? Um, sometimes their waiter will, if they're truly known for something, they'll, they'll be very proud of that and they'll tell you. Other times they'll just say, everything's good. So when you get that, you might want to look around and see, is everyone here eating or the majority of people eating the same thing? And a lot of times it will be the case. So point, you know, say, what is that? Can I have that if you're open-minded, just, just order it. And, and a lot of times that will be the, the specialty or of course, doing, doing your research. <laughs> That's always a good way to do it. Um, there's a lot of guides out there that, that do go kind of bar by bar and, and highlight their, their specialty, whether it's uh, a blog, like, like my blog, or if it's a, even the guidebooks here in Spain for locals written in Spanish, they will go place by place and, and kind of tell you exactly what to order. Let's talk about some of the specific tapa that you might get. You mentioned the tortilla. That's the what, what's that called? The pincho de tortilla? Yep, you could say, yep, pincho de tortilla. And that's not a tortilla that we would think about traditionally like a Mexican tortilla. Explain what that is, Lauren. No, and um, as far as I know, torta, the word torta, is pretty much like a round-shaped cake-shaped object in the Spanish language, uh, if you go back to the root. And so tortilla is just a diminutive of that word. So it's like a, a small round-shaped object. Uh, and so we know it in the U.S. As, as Mexican tortillas, which are, of course, corner flour, flat tortillas. But here in Spain, that's definitely not what the, what the word means. And they're talking about these uh, round egg and potato omelets. And uh, the traditional tortilla is is nothing more than really great eggs and really great potatoes. The controversial ingredient for a lot of people is whether the classic tortilla should uh, involve or allow for onion. <laughs> okay. They, they, so they have a whole debate in Spain if you are a cebollista, a pro-onioner, um, <laughs> or a seen cebollista, uh, an anti-onion person. And so that that's kind of the first debate. And that that's really speaks to Spaniards' love of simplicity and of the top quality ingredients because you'd think potato and eggs, boring, you know, a little bit of salt and it just what what's what's so special about that. But when you have one with these amazing potatoes from the north of Spain and these farm fresh eggs, you think, oh my God, how 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 is it so good yet so simple? And you can understand I'm I'm clearly pro-onion, but um, you can understand why there are people who are, are such purists uh, here in Spain with, with their food. And so that's what, what our tortilla is here. And then you, of course, do have more modern places that add in all sorts of things, goat cheese and chorizo and uh, all sorts of ingredients, but those are not the, the traditional ones. So I imagine this 
onion debate manifesting itself with people in different colored jerseys demonstrating and marching in the streets. Pro onion, no anti. Um, so the question is, would would a uh, would a place that serves with onions, if you requested it, would they also serve it without onions, or do you go to a specific place to get onions or to not get onions? Most places have their way, so it's like if you don't like onions and ours has it, sorry. Uh, most <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's like this is the way we do it here. Another thing with the tortilla is depending, and this this is kind of regional. Uh, in the north, they make it very runny, almost to the point where it could be kind. Pretty raw, running out, and then you have what I call medium rare, which is how I like it, where it's where it's all it's all um, in there, but it's still juicy and and really nice. Uh, and then in the south of Spain, they do it a lot more dry. They cook it all the way through. It's completely cooked, and it's also tasty, but it, it's a little bit dry. And so sometimes in the south, you'll actually find that they'll top it with like mayonnaise and stuff. They they really like their their homemade mayonnaise here in Spain as well. So you also have that regional variation in how, how cooked the eggs are. Uh, so the tortilla is actually, it's, it's surprisingly complex. Let's talk about some of the other dishes uh, that you can get with tapas. Now, I've, I've, of course, a lot of people know about uh, churros, churros and chocolate. Mm-hmm. Reading on your website, um, I discovered something else that I really am looking forward to trying, which is called porous. Porous? Yes. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Describe what these are, Lauren, and how they're different. Compare and contrast to churros. So churros are like a fried dough, Uh, water, olive oil, salt, flour. Those are the ingredients. Um, And porras is what I call churros fat cousins. Um, They are a lot bigger and chewier than the thin churros that you'll you'll find here in Spain. Um, And the reason for that is they also include baking soda as an ingredient. So it kind of just expands them and they fry them in the oil. And they're much more of like a chewy donut texture than a than a crispy wand (laughs) that, that the churro is. Uh, and, and they're delicious. Uh, I prefer them to churros, although both can and are delicious if, if made fresh. But they're eaten usually for breakfast, sometimes as an afternoon snack. The, the common misconception is that you'd have churros for dessert, and that is never, that does not happen. And, and a lot of people eat these things plain. They don't actually always have them with the chocolate. That's more for children. They don't always have them covered in sugar. They never see cinnamon in their lives. That is a Mexican adaptation of the churro. Um, so these are, they're kind of... Uh, a, a snack that people would have to fill them up in the mornings while before they might go to a long day in the fields or, or working a, a long laborious day back in back in time uh and they were stick to your ribs fried dough i like them with sugar personally but but yeah they're they're, they're pretty delicious i'd recommend you try them i can't wait because i i like churros but i think i would really love porous um another another top uh one of my favorites are the Padron peppers, because to me, eating a plate of Padron peppers is like playing Russian roulette. You'll <laughs> you'll have you'll have ten or twenty of them, and they're delicious, and they're oily, and they're blistered, and salty, and delicious. And then you get that one that 
blows your head off because it's so spicy. Talk about the uh, Padron peppers. Yeah, so Padron peppers, you find them at a lot of Madrid's tapas bars because we've had so much immigration over the years from Galicia in the north of Spain, and that's where the Padron peppers come from. There's actually a town called Padron, and that's where they make the official, uh, or they grow the official protected origin Padron peppers. And of course, there's a lot of imitations nowadays that are sold as Padron peppers, but they're technically not from that area or, or whatever. Um, and the story goes that these were chilies that were brought over from, from the New World during the Age of Discovery. And when they first came over, they were, of course, spicy. Uh, but because of the climate, the spice kind of trickled out of them. And so for the most part, they're now quite mild. But every now and then you do get one of those uh, really spicy ones, which I've had the, the pleasure of eating a few times over the years, though they're, they're, they're hard to find. Uh, I actually prefer them. So I would love to order a plate of spicy ones, but no one's really been able to provide that quite yet. But they're a really popular tapa. And I, I compare them to popcorn because they're salty and delicious and they're small and you yeah, just yeah. pop them into your mouth and it just they just disappear um, in minutes. And it's a really common tapa here in Madrid and one that is pretty safe because you can't really mess them up. You're deep frying peppers whole <laughs> and putting salt on them. So they're pretty good in almost every place you order them. What are some of your favorite tapa that you like to have when you go out? Well, I love a dish that also supposedly originates here in Madrid at a, at a great restaurant called uh, La Casa del Abuelo, the grandfather's house. It's been around for over 100 years. And they supposedly invented this dish that's gambas al ajillo, which are garlic shrimp or garlic prawns. And when done well uh, with good prawns, and this place, for example, gets their prawns from from Spain, not you know from whatever fish farm out out in the, uh, halfway across the world, they're getting local prawns and they're using extra virgin olive oil, and so they're putting them on a really hot burner in a pool of olive oil and a ton of garlic and parsley, and they're just putting in these raw shrimp and letting them uh, cook for about maybe three or four minutes just until they start to sizzle. And they have also two little cayenne peppers that they put in there, which for me doesn't make the dish in any way, shape or form spicy, but for a lot of locals makes it very spicy. Uh, we definitely have a very different spice tolerance coming from the US to, to Spain. Um, and then you eat the prawns, which are delicious. And then the best part, though, you soak up all of that great olive oil and garlic and a little bit of chili with uh, some nice freshly baked bread. And so for me, that's that's a must on my tapas roots. Um, we have this on, on our tours as well. But like for when I give my friends my own little tour around Madrid, we always have to go have the garlic prawns. What about uh, what about drinking in Madrid uh, beer? And then the one thing that I'm really looking forward to is uh, vermouth vermouth. Uh, tell us about those. So beer is a drink of choice. Um, despite the fact that uh, Spain is one of the most wine producing countries in the world, we don't really drink the wine that we produce. We drink beer. Uh, so people drink a lot of beer. It's a lot of quite industrial beer, but it's served in a small glass called a caña traditionally. And uh, that means it's always cold and it just it's just nice. You finish your day or you go out for a tapa and you just have a nice cold, small beer. Um, and so we, we drink a lot of beer. The local beer here is called Mao. 
And then vermouth. Vermouth is a revelation for a lot of people who come to visit Spain because either they've never had it on its own or they maybe have or they've had it, had it in cocktails, but it's often an Italian brand of vermouth. It's usually martini and it just tastes nothing like what we're talking about here in Spain. So vermouth is a, a fortified white wine, although we call it red vermouth, um, the one that you'll usually find here. And that's because it's been colored with caramel and also infused with all sorts of herbs, botanicals, um, even roots, cinnamon, spices. Every vermouth maker has their own recipe and it could have a hundred ingredients. So they're, they're all pretty secretive about it. But these, these fortified wines have about 15% alcohol and they are sweet, which a lot of people again are like, Oh, I don't like sweet wine. It's not my, it's not my thing, but it's not overbearingly sweet because of all of the bitterness of these herbs and things that they put into the recipe. So it goes down real easy. They serve it cold and it really opens your appetite as that aperitif drink, which we do here around one o'clock in the afternoon or around 7.30, 8, 8.30 at night. So before lunch or before dinner, you have one, maybe two vermouths. You might want a third, but don't do it. It's like always <laughs> bad. It's always a bad choice. Um, so <laughs> That's good. Good tip. Um, so where is vermouth made in Spain? In the north? So it originally comes from Catalonia in Spain, so oh. from the region that Barcelona's in. And that's because the, the story of vermouth, um, it, it kind of passed across the border into Spain through Italy. So martini and all the Italian vermouths were first, but they're not better, <laughs> is what I like to say. <laughs> um, they're just very different. The taste profile is completely different. And so crossed into Catalonia, people took um, the, the liberty to kind of change the recipes. And there's an area of, outside of Barcelona called a town called Reus, which is very famous for vermouth. And so there's a lot of Catalan brands of vermouth. Some of my favorites are from Catalonia. But because vermouth over the past five years in Spain has had a bit of a resurgence, it used to be a bit of a an old man's drink or something that, you know, your aunties would drink here right. in Spain. But over the past five years, it became really, really trendy among uh, the younger generations. And so having a vermouth in, in Catalan, there's actually a, a verb called doing vermouth, which means going out for drinks before lunch. And you don't necessarily have to order vermouth, but that's what they call that whole act of going out um, for drinks is doing the vermouth. And so you, you have a lot of great ones from Catalonia, but nowadays you'll find vermouth from uh, even the Sherry Triangle. A lot of those bodegas are producing a vermouth. In Madrid, we have different brands of vermouths from different wineries. And in the north of Spain, where you normally find a lot of those fruity or white wines, a lot of um, wineries have started to produce a, a vermouth using those wines as the base white wine for the the, um, the vermouth, which make them also really interesting. We're talking with Lauren Alois. She is the founder of Devour Tours. She also is the founder of SpanishSabores.com. Lauren, um, on your tours, Devour, you're in four cities in Spain. You've also expanded into Rome, um, uh, Paris, and where's the third? Lisbon. Lisbon. Yep. Lisbon. And uh, tell us when someone goes on a tour with Devour, what can they expect? 
So food is where we, where we try to capture people. You've got to eat. You might have taken a food tour before. You're hungry. You want to try a lot of things. And sometimes that's hard if you're just you know, traveling with your partner or even by yourself. And so we'll try to capture you with the fact that you come with us and you're going to have amazing food. But really, that's just the beginning because where I think we differentiate ourselves um, from other people types of food tours is that our tours always blend in the culture, the history and the people uh, in a destination. We just my, my co-founder and I, we we're from a writing background, as you can see with my blog. We we love to tell stories. We love to uh, introduce people to the local culture. And for us, it was really you couldn't extract the food. You couldn't just take people to the best places for X, Y, and Z, you had to build in a story and, and a, a narrative that really involved the, the reasons that these foods are popular, the reasons that this place exists, and the people behind the food. So our tours try to really mix in those elements um, and always use food as the lens for which we can talk about so many other things in uh, the cities that we, we operate in. And so people walk away and they, we always say they'll have a full belly, but also a full mind and hopefully have, have really had a true experience that allows them to see the local culture um, in a little bit of a different way. In Madrid specifically, where are some of your favorite places to go and maybe one or two places that you might take a tour group with Devour? So one of my favorite places in, in Madrid, and it's been on our tours since day one, is called Casa Tony. And anytime you see Casa in front of uh, a restaurant name, it's most likely one of those traditional places I was telling you about, like a tavern type place. And Casa Tony is the definition of a Madrid tavern. It's not beautiful, um, but it is in the kitchens about the size of, I don't know, like they've got like one little grill area, everything you can see when you walk in, there's no other kitchen in the back. It's just what you see is what you get. And this place is famous for all of the Madrid, um, what we call the raciones, those those portions that you would go out with your friends and you'd order a bunch and you'd share them. And, and people would say that they went for tapas, but again, the, the serving size were the, were the larger plates. Um, and at Casa Tony, you can get stuff just like chorizo cooked in cider, fresh tomatoes with sea salt, the Padron peppers, a heaping plate of calamari or baby squid. Uh, and you can also get Madrid's specialties, which while they're not to be honest, my favorite thing to eat are absolutely something to try while you're in Madrid, which are organ meats. Uh, Cascaria, we call it here in Spain, are, are awful. Um, and so here in Madrid, the most typical kind of things that you might order from that portion of the menu are fried pig ear. That's a, a very Madrid dish. Tripe stew. Um, and then, of course, kidney, sweetbreads, um, lamb intestines that they braid around sticks and deep fry. So all of those kind of mm, sort of peasant food. Yeah. I mean, food that that when times were tough, especially in, right. in the history of Madrid, it was it was a more than more than happy occasion to be eating eating that. So people grow, grow up with it if they're from Madrid or if they've lived here for a long time. I didn't. And I'm, I'm very open minded. I like to try. But so far, mm, I, I'll stick with the chorizo and the, the pimientos de padrón. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Um, what about this restaurant? Uh, uh, it's spelled B-O-T-I-N, Botin? 
Botine. Mm-hmm. Botine. Botine. Um, talk about this restaurant because everywhere that I read about Madrid, this restaurant pops up on it. Yeah. So Botine or El Sobrino de Botine, which is the long name, which means uh, Botine's nephew, is a Madrid institution because it is officially the oldest restaurant in the world as classified by the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, so it opened in 1725. It has a, a plaque outside the door that Madrid gives to its uh, centennial restaurants and shops. And it's a, a piece of history that we have in the city. And there's a lot of things that I've seen written over the years on whether it's worth it to go to Botine. Is it just a tourist trap? It's for me, it's absolutely worth it. I think it's it's a fantastic place uh, to visit if you're coming to Madrid. The food is very good and the experience is amazing. Um, you'll see it was a favorite hangout of Ernest Hemingway during his time in Madrid. They'll show you if you'd like, you know, where he supposedly used to sit and where he used to make his own cocktails and behind the bar. <laughs> and it's a place with ambiance, with great service, and the food is really good. Um, it, their specialty is the suckling pig. They still do it in the old brick oven from 1725, and it's it's fantastic. Uh, the only reason I would ever give Botine a miss is if you were, while in Madrid, taking a day trip to Segovia, which is a town about an hour from Madrid that's uh, famous for its suckling pig. So if you don't want to double up on the suckling pig, I'd say, you know, you're going out to a smaller town and Segovia is beautiful, have it there. But if you're not able to do that, I would absolutely make a reservation at Botine. And, and it's actually, it's, it's on one of our tours. We combine um, the Prado Museum with Botine, uh, a visit to Botine before it opens to learn all of the history and the stories behind it. And before you have the whole suckling pig and Rioja wine, heavy, delicious meal. That's a good combination, the, the museum with uh, Botine. Uh, you mentioned Segovia. What are some of the other day trips? If we're staying in Madrid for an extended period, what are some of the day mm-hmm. trips we might be thinking about? So the top two are absolutely Toledo and Segovia, and they're very different. Uh, Toledo is full of history. Everywhere you look, you're seeing something that has an amazing story. So my biggest tip for Toledo and something I didn't do for years was I visited many times without any type of guide. And, um, and that was to my detriment because as much as it's fun to look around on your own, I just had no idea what I was looking at. It was beautiful buildings, churches, uh, old synagogues and old mosques, but I, I was missing the story. And so finally, um, I went with my parents, uh, probably five years ago and hired a, a company to, to, to guide us, you know, just a normal walking tour led by an official guide an architect. And, oh my goodness, how it opened my eyes to what, is in Toledo. And since then, when I've gone back a few times with different people, I've uh, always, always gotten a, uh, a private guide and just, it's, it's pretty incredible, the layers of history that are in that city. So I think Toledo is a must. If you have to choose one place, it's where I always recommend. Um, and then Segovia is also pretty incredible. It's got, it's a lot quieter, it's a lot smaller, but it has the suckling pig that you must go out for lunch and eat. And it has a beautiful castle and also history and a beautiful Roman aqueduct. Um, it's a really nice 
calm day trip, not as, not as sight filled as Toledo. So those are the top two. Um, and then Madrid, it's a wine region. So there's a ton of smaller towns and areas that if you have a car or if you're able to take some sort of wine tour, um, you can get out to, to wineries, you can get out to very rural, small towns. Uh, one of my favorites is called Chinchon. They're famous for garlic. Um, and they have a, a really quaint uh, bullring that they're famous for. It's a very beautiful green painted balconies, uh, small bullring in the center of the town. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of places to explore outside of Madrid, but I would definitely not not miss Segovia and Toledo. Barcelona has been in the news recently because of the issue of over tourism and somewhat of a local backlash against tourists. Does Madrid face any similar issues with over-tourism? We face a lot of uh, similar issues to Barcelona, though the reaction has been very different. We are not as affected as Barcelona in terms of housing, which I think is where a lot of the resentment comes from when when cities turn into, the city centers turn into uh, basically an enormous, you know, Airbnb or uh, holiday rental platform and displace the locals. That's really where I think a lot of the Barcelona resentment comes from. It stems specifically from the housing issue. Um, and Madrid is facing that now, just a little bit later, I think, than, than Barcelona had that issue really escalate. Um, but we're also seeing record tourist numbers for foreign arrivals here in Madrid. And so it's something that that is is on the top of a lot of people's minds as far as how we manage it and how we ensure that we're getting quality tourism and that we're also uh, managing the tourists that we do have. Something we luckily, well, I guess we could see it two ways, but luckily I think don't have in Madrid is the cruise ship tourism because right. that's really detrimental to Barcelona. A lot of those ships, they dock and of course they pay huge fees to do so, but they have people who use the city and don't necessarily consume anything um, or very little while they're here. So they're you know on, on land for six hours. And, and so we don't have that. We do, on the whole, I think, have a, a little bit higher level of uh, tourism here in Madrid as to how much people spend and the kind of cultural tourists that they are. So we're seeing it, and there's a lot of conversations around it. For our company, uh, sustainability and responsibility are two huge pillars um, of our core values and of our of our mission. Um, we want to make sure that our tours always help culture thrive. So if it's not something that if it's, you know, we, it needs to be a win-win-win for everyone. It needs to be good for us. It needs to be good for the, the local community, the business owner that we're visiting, uh, the guide that's leading the tour. And we're really conscious of that because tourism has so much power. And we've seen it in the past 10 years, too, as, as we've gotten out of a recession here in Spain, also in Portugal, um, in Italy, has so much power to help. But and grow economies. But at the same time, it, it's something that if it's done poorly, can actually really cause issues. So it's it's a constant conversation uh, at Devour Tours, but uh, it needs to be a conversation for, for all of the t- companies involved in tourism is, is, the, is the problem. I'm glad to hear you say that, Lauren, because I recently spoke with uh, Elizabeth Becker. She wrote a book on this very topic of over-tourism. And she talked about the cruise ships. And of course, the issue with the cruise ships that you point out correctly is that 
they're on land for six hours, but they maybe have a lunch. They don't eat dinner there. They don't stay overnight. I, I doubt there's many people that go to Madrid just as a day trip. If you're going to Madrid, you're going you're gonna to probably stay overnight. You're probably going to be there for a while. When you go to Madrid, what's your, what's your advice for uh, accommodations, Airbnb, hotels? What, what's, uh, what's the different choices and what do you think are the best ones? Yeah, we have a bit of everything. Uh, we don't have a highly regulated Airbnb uh, situation yet. We do, they are regulated, but they're not uh, as much so as Barcelona. So there's still an abundance of Airbnb and similar uh, home rental accommodations. Then we also have amazing hotels starting from one star to five star. You can find a, a real variety. I always recommend, I mean, my personal travel preferences are if I'm staying somewhere for a long time for, you know, more than maybe five days, I do like checking out uh, local apartment rentals because I think that it can really help uh, allow you to experience a city, especially the food in a, in a more local way, uh, specifically because you have a kitchen at your disposal. And I don't, unless I'm in a place for only a couple of days, I really enjoy going to the local markets and buying some of the local food and cooking. I, I also love to cook. Uh, but the hotels in Madrid are excellent as well. And so if you're staying for only a few days, I would definitely recommend looking into the variety of the hotels that we have because we just do have a lot of available at, at a variety of price points, which is really, really nice for people. And and even our the budget hotels in Madrid are are quite nice. Um, so it's not like, oh, if you're, if you're spending less than 100 euros a night, you're, ooh, you're going to... Staying in a flea bag. It's, it's, no, yeah, it's not at all. You can, especially during the off season, you can get a great hotel for 35, 40 euros a night. Simple, clean, and, and centrally located. Um, I always recommend for neighborhoods that people check out this, what we just call the center, the whole area around the, the main plaza, the Plaza Mayor, um, Seoul, which is another of the main squares, and the Royal Palace, um, the Literary Quarter, which is kind of right behind that area. Um, the Lava Pies neighborhood, you can find some great deals in. It's also very central, um, just a little bit more, um, there's, there's different areas of the neighborhood and some are a little bit more run down. So you want to make sure that you get a place that's in line with your expectations, but you can find some really nice local places in the Lava Pies neighborhood. Um, and then if you go to the north, uh, a little bit north of the center, you've got Chueca, which is our, our gay district, which has tons of boutiques and restaurants and uh, awesome nightlife. Um, Malasaña, which <laughs> maybe we'll call our like our hipster area, um, tons of coffee shops and, and great little cafes, not necessarily Spanish, a lot of them, but uh, very, very good and, and also boutiques. And then you'll get into an area called Chamberdi, which is a little bit further north, a little bit further from the center, but super local and um, also a nice place to stay. So, there, I mean, there's a lot. And then there's a, a neighborhood that's more luxury where you'll find all of the luxury brands, and that's called Salamanca. So Madrid's a big city in the end, but I, I do recommend staying centrally because as well-connected as the city is by metro, there's just it's a city that's that people love walking. So to miss out on, on being able to walk around would be a shame. You brought up a great point, Lauren, which is the uh, going to the farmer's market and getting your produce to cook. Even if you're not cooking, I recommend always going to the farmer's market because you can pick up cute little souvenirs or just little stuffs for a snack for a picnic or whatnot. But the question is, 
Is there in in Madrid? I'm uh, in uh, Europe. I'm seeing the explosion of these food halls. Is there a good food hall in Madrid that people should check out? Yes, yes. We are our oldest and longest standing one is called the Mercado de San Miguel, the San Miguel Market, and it's right in the center of Madrid, and it's it's got a, a cross section of all the most famous Spanish dishes. It's a beautiful old iron sided building, over a hundred years old. So it's it's kind of a, a must check off stop on on every. Uh, route and there are some very good quality vendors in there. However, it is very touristy. Um, but then Madrid has over 60 municipal markets, so every neighborhood has its local market. And the trend has been since really since the recession that a lot of these markets were a lot of the stalls were shuttered because of of um, tough times. They've been revitalized by people who are offering more food hall style uh, cuisine. So instead of opening another fruit stand in the market, maybe it used to be a fruit stand or a fishmonger, um, it'll now be a, a more trendy coffee shop or a place to have um, you know, ramen or some sort of fusion. So we're seeing a lot of that or an upscale cheese shop, something, something like that. So I would say any of the local markets, whatever neighborhood you're staying in, do not miss them. And then specifically, there's two that I really like um, for the the food hall kind of stops, which one is called uh, the Mercado de Anton Martin, Anton Martin, and that is right in the center um, at the top of the Lava Pies neighborhood, but right outside of the literary quarter as well. And that has a lot of great stalls, small. And then another one called uh, Mercado Valle Hermoso, and that's a little bit further north, but also has some excellent um, stalls in it for all sorts of food from Asian fusion to home baked breads and and kind of everything, everything in between. Lauren, you know, we're going to include all of these places that you talked about in the show notes. So if people are interested, they can uh, they can take a look at them. It's been so great to talk to you, uh, someone who lives in Madrid. It's got me so excited to uh, make a trip to Madrid. So I thank you for being on the show. But before we let you go, why don't you tell us where we can contact you if we want to book a Devour tour or if we want to uh, go to your website? Sure. Yeah. No, and thank you. It's really been a pleasure. I love I love chatting about this stuff. I could could spend hours. Um, but yeah, so for for any type of Spanish recipes or uh, Spain dining guides, city guides, I also have some other cities on there like Lisbon and Paris and Rome, but uh, it would be SpanishSabores.com. And that's where you'll find me. And then if you are interested in Devour Tours, uh, that's DevourTours.com. And you'll find all sorts of tours that we offer here in Madrid, but also in Barcelona, San Sebastian, Seville, and now in Paris, Lisbon, and Rome. So you'll get a really unique insider experience that hopefully connects you to the local cuisine. Well, thanks for visiting with us, Lauren, and we'll look forward to seeing you down the road. Thank you, Brent. I hope to see you in Madrid soon. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Take care. Well, there you go. Now I've got a nice long list of places to visit in Madrid on our upcoming trip. Can't wait to try some of those tortillas and, of course, the vermouth. I hope you've been inspired to visit Madrid as well. I've got city guides to well over 30 locations all over the world at my website, 
DestinationEatDrink.com. Madrid isn't on there yet, of course, because I haven't been there yet, but you can be sure I'll be adding it as soon as we get back from Madrid. There is a guide, though, to Porta de Santa Maria. That was the place that Lauren and I talked about at the beginning of the episode. And there's also a podcast about Porto de Santa Maria. You can find links to both of those at DestinationEatDrink.com. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Next week, I'll be visiting another great foodie hotspot. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.